When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're wrapping up the story of Joseph and Jacob and all the other amazing events of the book of Genesis. A really good book. Highly recommend it. And so the book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. We talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we stop there because it gets a little confusing. Joseph becomes the new patriarch, head of the clan, even though he's not the firstborn son, even though he doesn't inherit the um, fatherly blessing or the inheritance of Jacob's property. He's long gone by the time Jacob hands that over. Um, it's given to Reuben, the eldest son. But in fact, Joseph is the one who carries on the spiritual legacy of Jacob, becoming a patriarch. From Joseph's descendants, we have two tribes come out of him, Ephraim and Manassas, born of his two children. He's married to an Egyptian woman who is the daughter of a priest, an Egyptian priest. So Joseph embodies this new era, this new development in the people of God as they come into Egypt. And Joseph knows that the promise that was made to Abraham was not that they would inherit land in Egypt, but that they'd inherit the land in Canaan, that they would inherit the land that is now the land of Israel. But they're not there. They're far away. They're living in Goshen, in the in where, where what is then called Egypt and what is today called Egypt. And yet the promise of God is still coming through this, this the descendants of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family. When Manasseh, um, there are three generations born while Joseph is still living, um, and and they're born as the phrase goes, on Joseph's knees. In other words, these are children of the covenant. These are children in the line of Abraham. It's important for the author to note that because Joseph is married to uh, someone that is not from the family of Abraham. Notice when Jacob is, needs a wife and Isaac needs a wife, the fathers say, we have to find a wife that's suitable from our own people from some related family member, which um, in some cases are cousins, second cousins, and so forth. But uh, this is the, um, this is what Joseph, this is what the author wants you to know about Joseph, is that he is still part of the, the line of God's blessing. But it's a lot more practical for the brothers. They're not so concerned about who's inheriting what. They're more concerned about Joseph killing them once the father dies. They know how people are. They know about human nature. They know that sometimes people behave just because there's somebody around watching them or they don't want to upset dad or mom. Uh, so much of our human behavior is dictated by this that somebody is around, somebody will see, somebody is watching. 
But Joseph has crossed that bridge a long time ago. Joseph knew when he was a young man, sold into slavery, sold into a situation without any rights, without any ways to defend himself, um, and far from home. He knew that only God saw him, that nobody else would care what he did. Nobody else would care what he did or didn't do when he was in Egypt. He was far from his family, far from his father's accountability in any way. So as a young man, he developed the kind of character that says, you know, even if nobody's watching, I'm going to do the right thing. Uh, His brothers have not learned this. They are only behaving because somebody's watching, like Jacob, their father. So when Jacob dies, they know what they would do, and that is they do something to Joseph, when in fact they think Joseph will do that to them. Usually the stuff that we're afraid of other people doing to us is stuff that we want to do to other people. Um, Do you ever notice when someone accuses you of something, it's usually something that they're dealing with or struggling with or wanting to do, and they just assume everybody else wants to do it too. Um, This is often the pattern of accusation, that we see the worst in other people because really that's stuff that's inside us as well. The kind of stuff that irritates us in other people is often things that we're internally dealing with ourselves. Now, this isn't always true. It's not a hard and fast rule, and there's lots of exceptions in human behavior. But I found this to be kind of true for me. Um, The kind of things I get really upset about are often things that I have a, a sort of iffy relationship to morally myself. And these brothers are like that. Um, So um, Joseph says, so they approach Joseph. um, And I don't know if they've made this up. I think they've concocted this out of thin air, but maybe not. I'm not sure. I need to maybe study the text a little more carefully. Um, But they said, you know, Joseph, Jacob's dead, our father's dead. But he wanted to tell you this that when I die, I want you to forgive your brothers for the wrong they did in harming you. Um, I'm trying to, um, yeah, I don't know that we have any evidence that Jacob ever said this. (laughs) So they're lying to Joseph to protect themselves um, for something Joseph has never said he would do, or there's no indication that Joseph would do it. When Joseph had the chance to kill him, he didn't. He's had a chance to kill them this whole time or punish them, and he hasn't. In fact, he's blessed them in abundance, with abundance, with status, with privilege, with being part of this inner circle of Egypt. Joseph weeps when they say this. He he breaks down and he speaks and he says, it says twice in the text that he weeps. And Joseph falls down before them, falls down in grief. And he says, um, he says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? This is where forgiveness starts. The only way forgiveness ever works. And forgiveness only works in situations that are unforgivable. Things that you can't forget. Things you can't just dismiss and brush aside. Forgiveness only works in those kinds of situations where 
we can't easily brush these things off. And what they've done to Joseph is unforgivable, completely unforgivable. But Joseph recognizes that forgiveness starts when we realize that we're not God, that we don't see everything, and that ultimately we are not the judge of every person, that we are not the judge. God is the judge. He says, even though you intended to harm, to do harm to me, God intended it for good. This is a fundamental rule of faith, is that when we see things that are terrible happening to us, we feel those things and we experience those things, God is still at work. I don't know how, and we don't always know how, and Joseph certainly didn't know how, but in some ways, that's what he's saying at the end of his life, 110 years old. He's had a long time to think about this. He's had a long time to prepare this speech, and he gives it now. You intended harm. God intended it for good. And the point is, not just for Joseph's betterment. It's not just so Joseph will be happy at the end of his life. Joseph will have nice things. Joseph won't be a slave anymore. It's because God is working God's salvation in the world through these people, through Reuben, through Judah, through Issachar, through Manasseh, through Ephraim, through Joseph, through his wicked brothers. God is working to save the world. He says, because God needed to raise up a mighty people. And because God wanted to do that, all these things that they did to him for evil were actually working for the good. That's where forgiveness starts. We realize that we're not God, that God is working beyond us in ways that we can't understand. That's where forgiveness starts. And that's where it started for Joseph. But there's tears and there's falling down on the ground and there's hard conversations with the people that have hurt us. That's not all off the table. That's still happening. And Joseph never says what they did to him wasn't a big deal. It totally is. And Joseph never lets his guard down to the day he dies. He's in a position of power so he can afford to do this. God has put him there and so he, he can afford to be gracious in this way. This is not a prescription for how we deal with every awful, evil person in our life or anything like that. What it is, though, is an invitation, an opportunity to say, I'm not God. How do I really feel about this? Do I weep over this? Am I sorrowful? Am I sad? Do I wish things were different? And then to say that although this was meant for evil, God has meant it for good. And here I am. I am part of God's plan. I am part of God's salvation. I am powerful. I am whole. And I am generous with the forgiveness God has given me to other people. Amen. Commemorates, commemorates Innocent of Alaska, a bishop, Innocent, whose secular name was John Veniaminov, was born on August 26, 1797, in the little village of Angioskie Verolonskis district in the Irkutsk province of Russia. So, Siberia, I think. Um, he served two years as a parish priest and volunteered as a missionary and to start a mission in the Aleutian Islands. The Aleutian Island chain is that long string of islands that 
come off of Alaska. It's a tropical climate in many ways. Um, Rainforests, I have been there. It's a really an amazing place. But there in 1823, um, his wife and infant son set out for a long journey to Alaska, which was owned by Russia at the time. He began to work to with the uh, people that were living there and was called the Apostle to North America. Um, one of the things that the Orthodox missionaries did was to start monasteries. That was the first thing they did, was started regular hours of prayer, praying. And that's what we've done in this church plant. Um, that was the first thing we did, was started praying morning prayer. You guys have done that. That's the only way we're ever going to plant this church, is through prayer, through regular prayer, faithful prayer, because that's what changes and invites people in to what God is doing in our church. Not necessarily what we're doing, but what God is doing. Um, he traveled all over those islands, learned many languages of the native peoples, and devised a Cyrillic script or Cyrillic alphabet for the Aleut language, where the Aleut Indians or Native Americans um, used. He translated the Gospel of Matthew and prayers and hymns. Um, in 1829, he preached on the Bering Sea coast. In 1834, he was transferred, transferred to Sitka Island in Alaska with the Tlingit people. Um, he won um, the confidence of the Tlingit chiefs by introducing the smallpox vaccine to them in 1836, saving many lives when a smallpox epidemic was reaching um, their island. So the, a vaccinator, he was a pro-vaccine missionary. I'm thankful for that early witness in Christianity. We have always been a pro-vaccine faith. We want to protect people from diseases, and this missionary in 1823 was no exception. The smallpox vaccine was very controversial in its day. George Washington famously inoculated the smallpox vaccine into his Continental Army, and many deserted. Um, it caused a great controversy, but he did it anyway because it was for the for greater good of troop readiness. There were deaths from the smallpox vaccine. Um, it was a a controversial thing to do at the time, but it saved many lives. Um, uh, his wife died and he became a monk in 1840 and took the name Innocent. Um, he became a bishop of the whole area eventually and uh, began to continue and continued to travel and plant churches all over that very rugged land. In 1867, he was appointed as the Metropolitan of Moscow and the leader of the entire Russian Orthodox Church, which, um, and he died about 12 years later in Moscow, Russia. Holy immortal one who didst bless thy people by calling innocent from leading thy church in Russia to be an apostle and light to the people of Alaska and to proclaim the dispensation and grace of God, guide our steps that as he didst labor humbly in danger and hardship, we may witness to the gospel of Christ wherever we are led and serve thee as gladly in privation as in power. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, to the ages of ages. Amen. And I was flying on an airplane on Southwest Airlines many years ago. And sitting next to me was a young woman. And I got talking to her back when people talked on airplanes. And she said that, she was flying to Texas from Alaska uh, to 
um, meet a man that her Orthodox, Russian Orthodox priest had arranged a marriage for her in Texas, and she was going to meet him for the first time to see if she liked him. And uh, it was a witness to, to the strong Orthodox, Russian Orthodox community that still exists in Alaska. And, um, and it's very, a very thriving faith there, which um, Episcopalians have always looked to for guidance. We've always looked to the Orthodox for guidance of how to be a church that's Catholic, but not connected to Rome. Um, that's one thing that they do really well. Um, although today, the Russian Orthodox Church has its own troubles. Um, we, we thank God for this early witness. How can we pray for each other today?